Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Islamophobia has always existed in the United States well before 9-11. But after the September 11th attacks in 2001, Muslims transitioned from being, as one expert described, an invisible subject to a visible suspect. Unfavorable ratings for Muslim Americans increased after 9-11 in public opinion polls, according to the Pew Research Center, fueled by religious and race bias, misconceptions about Islam, and media stereotyping. As we approach the 20th anniversary of 9-11, we're examining the systemic and structural racism against Muslims that has long been embedded in this country, questioning if, as the years go by, Islamophobia will continue to deepen in our society. Joining me now, Amani Jamal, the Edwards S. Sanford Professor of Politics at Princeton University, Dean of the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, Director of the Madua S. Bobst Center for Peace and Justice, and author of Arab Americans Before and After 9-11. Welcome, Amani. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Glad to have you. Journalist Malika Bilal, host of The Take podcast by Al Jazeera and former co-host of The Stream, a social media-led talk show on Al Jazeera English. Thanks for joining us, Malika. Thanks for having me. Fatima Ahmad, executive director at the Muslim Justice League here in Boston. Hi, Fatima. Hi, Callie. Thanks for having me on. Well, this is a sobering moment as we approach the upcoming 9-11 anniversary because our conversation really is about the bias that each of you have endured for some time. But I want to start this way with each of your personal stories about where you were and what you experienced in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 with regard to a change in attitude toward you. I'll start with you, Fatima. You were in the ninth grade when 9-11 happened. Yes, I was. I had just started the ninth grade and I was growing up in Cumberland, Maryland, which is in the Appalachian Mountains in the western part of Maryland. So I was a young Muslim woman, you know, woman of color. I wore the hijab. I was the only Muslim girl for for many, many miles. And the immediate impact was was violence. You know, me riding the school bus home um, and being harassed by by kids that I had grown up with just hearing within a few days of it that neighbors were putting up signs with really violent and racist terms about Muslims, you know, calling for violence against Muslims. And so this was just an immediate escalation for me and my family, even though we had definitely experienced racism and Islamophobia prior to that in those first few moments and first few days and weeks, it was definitely escalated. Thank you. Malika, you were 16 when it happened, but in a little bit different situation because you were in an Islamic school. So you were 
around people who understood and appreciated your faith, but still you experienced this. Right, exactly. School always felt like a safe space. So I remember, like Fatima, I was in high school. I was a senior in high school. And my father is driving my sister and I to school. It's about a 30-minute drive from our home on the south side of Chicago to the southwest suburbs to where our predominantly Muslim Islamic school was located. And we're hearing it on the news. We're getting worried, but not quite sure what it is and what exactly is happening. So my dad drops us off at school and at school, all anyone can do is look at the TV screens. The teachers have rolled into the classrooms for us to watch the news and see how it's unfolding. And very quickly, the narrative that unfolded, the the blaming, the finger pointing began. School was canceled. Everyone went home that day. And then in the days and weeks that followed, because it was a Muslim school, we had neighbors who felt that they could take out their anger and their frustration on the school and on the surrounding community, the mosque that's also in this neighborhood. And so that led to police cars in the parking lot, um, standing watch, uh, being vigil, because we had bomb threats. We had eggs thrown at the windows of the school. This was all the response to the tensions that people were feeling. But unfortunately, it made us as Muslims feel twice at risk. As, as Americans who had also suffered an attack on our country and were feeling the effects of that, but then also as Muslims from the backlash that followed out of fear. Amani, hmm. you were born and raised in the U.S., left and lived in Ramallah, Palestine from 10 years old to 18 years of age, but came back to the States in the late 80s and early 90s to pursue your education and found yourself right after 9-11 really confronted with a lot of misconceptions about Muslims, because at that point, you're in academia. Yeah, that's exactly right. So my entry point into academia vis-a-vis trying to secure a job sort of coincided with the 9-11 attacks. So I was on the job market, visibly Muslim, so I wear the hijab, and trying to secure a job. And almost everybody and anybody wanted to learn more about 9-11. So I often felt that I was sort of a spokesperson on behalf of the Muslim community and, and, and on behalf of Islam to sort of represent and contextualize what the horrors of 9-11 meant, not only to the US, but to Muslim communities across the globe. And, you know, I'm not a student of violence or a student of terrorism. I was a student of democratization and democratic engagement. So I sort of felt I was thrust in this other arena because of the misperceptions out there. You know, and I vividly remember when we would talk about 9-11 and Islam, it became very clear to me in those early months after 9-11 that the average American knew very little about Islam and the average American had probably never encountered another Muslim. So sort of dealing with that very deep sense of not knowing what Islam and, and, and Muslims were all about and finding ourselves in, in, in academia, but in everyday life having to counter the overwhelming and almost horrifying stereotypes that sort of emanated also from different media outlets, from the popular discourse around Islam and Muslim, it was very overwhelming. I think if we were able to sample anybody from the Muslim community who was actively present in the community after 9-11, you will hear a, a sense of the sheer desperation in the community to realize that you know, I remember saying this over and over, 
we are not going to be able to overcome the public relations catastrophe of this event if we can't find partners in American society to understand that we are shocked that this happened. We condemn these acts, but we also don't want to be the victims and we don't want to be beholden and accused of being behind these attacks. And for a long time, even the most active and visible community members, there was a sense that we might lose this public relations campaign. And, and quite honestly, if you sort of think about the events that came after 9-11, whether it was the invasion of Afghanistan, then Iraq, and then, then the war on terror in the Muslim world, and then the, the Patriot Acts and, and the attacks on our own civil liberties in this country, for, I, th I would say for a good decade after 9-11, the sense was that we did lose this battle, that we were getting subsumed as Muslims in this catastrophe. We were targeted, our rights were being stripped, and a lot of us began to question whether this was going to be the place to raise our children. So I want to go back, because you've raised very important points there, but I want to go back to the moments, the days after 9-11, when all of this sentiment is swirling. And just so that people can understand how much it was swirling and how intense it was, President George W. Bush uh, felt the need to address it. So here he is speaking at the Islamic Center of Washington just six days after the 9-11 attack in 2001. When we think of Islam, we think of a faith that brings comfort to a billion people around the world. Billions of people find comfort and solace and peace. And that's made brothers and sisters out of every race. America counts millions of Muslims amongst our citizens. And Muslims make an incredibly valuable contribution to our country. Muslims are doctors, lawyers, law professors, members of the military, entrepreneurs, shopkeepers, moms and dads and they need to be treated with respect. And our anger and emotion, our fellow Americans must treat each other with respect. So President Bush there felt the need to articulate who Muslims were, like ordinary people. He was followed at that same program by Youssef Salim. He was an imam at the Islamic Center of Washington who wanted to really reemphasize, you know, we're Americans. And he spoke after President George Bush's address. Again, this was six days after the 9-11 attack to those victims and to the families of those victims and to all America to let them know we also are shocked and dismayed by the events and dismayed especially that it should be associated with a religion that has only peace as its ultimate aim. I am here with other representative members of the Muslim American community and we are part of the fabric of America and we have contributed as our president has said in so many ways. So Malika, now, fast forward to 20 years later, people may not know that Islam is the fastest growing religion really in the world, and it's second only uh, to Christianity in the world and, and in the U.S. But the changing demographics are such, as Pew made note in 2016, that by 2070, Muslims will outnumber Christians. We're talking about in this country. So does that mean that be there are more people, you can see folks, you can interact with them, there's been a reduction in the kind of intense violence and bias and misconception that certainly was apparent right after 9-11? That's a good question. It's, it's so striking to hear those words from a president, for, you know, being taken back to that time, especially because we just left uh, an administration that 
was not able to even give the lip service of acknowledging that Muslims are people and Americans and people worthy of, of, of respect. So while those were the right words at the time from President Bush, of course, they also accompanied policies that did the exact opposite, policies that surveilled our communities, targeted our communities, investigated our communities. It's interesting because I grew up in a Black neighborhood and my family and I were not insulated. Everyone knew we were Muslims, but they also were familiar with Islam. They were familiar with uh, having a cousin who was a Muslim, whether that was someone who had joined because of the Nation of Islam or Orthodox Islam. They were familiar with the institution and the religion of Islam. So we were also around people who not only understood that, but they also understood marginalization. They understood stigmatization. And those were things that I think were newer for the immigrant Muslim community in the U.S. that they would begin to understand just as acutely as the African-American community has had to deal with all these years. And so the rhetoric has changed. I think you don't see the same level of attacks and intensity of attacks that we saw immediately after the 9-11 attacks. The policies remain, and it's the policies that have stigmatized our communities. It is the policies that have caused fear. It is the policies that have laid the groundwork, really, for what we see as this this creeping apparatus of the so-called war and terror. And so while when we think of the war and terror, we think of Iraq and Afghanistan and the wars that were there, it also had an effect on the communities here. And there are things that we, we hardly even remember anymore, but things like DHS, ICE, mass surveillance, these weren't normal. They weren't non-existent, but they were not everyday things that we had to think about. They were controversial, and now they're not. Um, and so I think while, yes, we don't see the level of intensity of, of fear and attacks, we do see the simmering effects of those policies of that time. And Fatima, you joined an organization that actually was started to really combat Islamophobic programs of religious and racial profiling and some of the policies that Malika has referred to. So the Muslim Justice League begun because uh, women lawyers wanted to represent people targeted by the FBI or deportation and then, you know, expanded into a grassroots advocacy campaign. So what do you see now, 20 years later? You know, we see both the individual level violence might not be day to day as escalated as it was in those those first few days and first few weeks after 9-11, but it's still there as it always has been, right? But we also see the impact of these policies, which escalated after 9-11, have continued to, to deepen in the past 20 years, but actually reflect the long history of the U.S. and both domestic policies and foreign policy that impacts Muslims. And so what you see here in a city like Boston, where MJL is, you have this deeply embedded Islamophobia that not only impacts Muslims, but impacts Black folks, immigrants, all of the communities who are deemed suspect because it's so easy for people to accept that something should happen to Muslims. You know, the Muslim ban was not a widely unpopular policy. I mean, people did go out and protest it at the airports when it happened, but there's a reason that Trump got elected and 
that that was the first executive order that happened, right? That really reflects how deeply Islamophobic our institutions, our media, culturally, that we've become, that something like that could actually happen within the first few days of that administration. I remember during that election year, in one of the debates between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, there was a Muslim audience member who asked for their take on Muslims. And both of them essentially said, Muslims are good and fine, you know, as long as they're reporting on themselves, as long as they are Mm. surveilling themselves Mm. and telling us about violence. And so the, the assumption is still that Muslims are inherently violent, that, you know, we have to deal with this problem, that we have to prove ourselves, we have to prove that we're American, we have to go through all of this surveillance and prove that we're not hiding anything. So what we see here in Boston, again, is you have a post 9-11 surveillance center that runs a gang database that impacts black and brown young people more broadly. But it was built again, based on national security pretext on that, that justification of Islamophobia. And so we, you know, in our work, are helping people to understand that Islamophobia is systemic, it's structural, and that we have a long way to go. But we also build solidarity with the other communities that are that are impacted similarly. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Princeton's Amani Jamal. Journalist Malika Bilal of Al Jazeera English and the Muslim Justice League's Fatima Ahmad were discussing how bias and racism against Muslims has changed as we approach the 20th anniversary of 9-11. What is the impact of uh, pop culture? And, and, and I know that may, to some ears, feel like an odd question, but there was a time, and to some degree there still is, where the face of villainy in films, for example, were always Muslim. So here's a clip from the 1994 film True Lies featuring actor Art Malik as Salim Abu Aziz. You have killed our women and our children, bombed our cities from afar like cowards, and you dare to call us terrorists! Now. The oppressed have been given a mighty sword with which to strike back at their enemies. Unless you, America, pulls all military forces out of the Persian Gulf area immediately and forever, will rain fire on one major U.S. city each week until our demands are met. Amani, what's the impact of this kind of pop culture diet? Yeah, thank you so much, Callie. So this is part of the problem. And and what's important to note is that a movie like True Lies predates 9-11. So so when when we talk about Islamophobia post 9-11, it's always important to point out that there's always been a healthy, robust current, if you may, of Islamophobia in the U.S. that predates 9-11. And it is because of these popular depictions in in the mainstream media, popular culture, movies, television, that this Islamophobia persists and was completely exaggerated, almost to an irrational perspective, where we we began to ask questions on surveys of whether Muslims in America should not have civil and political liberties. And you would find that significant majorities of the American public supported reducing the liberties 
the constitutional liberties of Muslim Americans in this country. And it's because of these portrayals, which, you know, at, at the heart of these portrayals is this idea that Muslims are so violent and there is a civilizational heritage that makes them prone to violence that in essence, they are not worthy. They are not worthy of the civil and political liberties bestowed on quote unquote civilized people. These tropes, if you may, these racialized tropes have often been there, not only in the media, but in the policy domain, Callie, they've been in the public sphere. We've used those tropes as, as cover to justify our military interventions in the region. So over and over, there is this convergence in policy, public opinion, in the media about the violent, other, horrible, racialized Muslim. And this has been a narrative. I mean, and so I always say this, you know, I challenge anybody out there until maybe very recently, Callie, maybe in the last two years, we could correct this, but up until let's say 2020 or 2019, when do we see normal looking Muslims who are on a playground playing with their children, worried about how to pay the bills and have the same sort of concerns of everyday Americans or everyday humans? Where, where is the human Muslim? And, 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 and people would often just, you know, and my students will stare at me and say like, okay, and, and then they go through this mental exercise. Well, maybe like six years ago in this one sitcom, there was like a one minute, but so that tells you that there's a problem because the only image this, uh, the public sees of Muslims is, is, is the violent extremist image and movies like True Lies, you know, it, it's sort of shameful, but they promote, when we talk about systemic racism, this, this is where we're getting at the roots of the, uh, the Islamophobia. So last question to all of you, where are we right now in terms of this growing bias and what do you predict for the next 20 years? I'll, I'll, I'll answer that by also picking up on your last question, because I agree with everything Amani said, but I do think anecdotally, we are starting to see change. You know, I think it, it, it sounds funny, but Cardi B, you know, raps about eating halal food in her songs. I think incrementally and anecdotally, we are starting to see the, the, the mood shift around Muslims and Muslims being the fabric, part of the fabric of the American society. You will see hijabis on Grey's Anatomy and other TV shows. Sure, within 30 minutes, their scarf is off, but they are there. And I think this reminds me of one of the protests, uh, it was after the Muslim ban, and I was covering it. I'm a journalist, and so I was covering it in D.C., and it was outside of the Trump Hotel. And one of the signs that I saw really struck me, and it was a sign that said, atheists for Muslims. And you had people chanting and shouting and saying, no ban. And I don't think I recall seeing that, and I don't think that we would have seen that immediately after the 9-11 attacks 20 years ago. So I do think things are changing. I fear for underlying policies that keep things as they are, the things that still stigmatize our communities. But I do think that there is there is room for hope. Hmm. Fatima? I think things have been changing. I get the benefit of seeing that every day with the organizing that that we do and seeing it at the community level. And it's always happening at the community level before it happens at the systemic level or culturally in the media. And that's why we exist is to, to build that power with our people. 
And I think that today is a good day. It's always a good day to start questioning these narratives, right? So much of it is that Islamophobia is deeply embedded in our media, in the cultural stories that we're telling and the, t- the stories that, that politicians are telling about why we're doing certain things. And so I feel hopeful, but I'm also, you know, making, making this call to action for anyone who is listening to go and, and understand. Amani. I'll be honest with you. I, I, I am an optimist by nature, and I have been around for, for a while watching the post-9-11 climate. So I've almost been tracking it, if you may, for the last 20 years. So there's a lot that encourages me and a lot that energizes me, especially I'm, I'm, I'm very encouraged by our, our youth in this country. I think that they're stepping up to the mantra of social justice in very commendable ways. And when we talk about social justice and inclusion and equity, of course, Muslims are part of that subset of people that need to you know, be recognized. The fact that we're beginning to talk about this in terms of understanding the you know, history of racialization in this country and how common and how easy it is to dehumanize people for no other reason than to satisfy, let's say, the interest of a few. The fact that we're reckoning with that history and we're understanding that history and our youth are out there understanding that history, I think is very, 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 very important. So I'm, I'm encouraged by that. Having said that, I also want to say, Callie, we have a lot of work to still do. When we look at public opinion data since 9-11, about a third to 40% of the mainstream American public believes that Muslims are targeted unfairly, which means another 50 to 60% of the American public believes that there is legitimacy in Islamophobia. That, that's a huge, huge segment of the population. We had a Muslim ban, in effect, that was not overturned by the Supreme Court. There was massive support for the Muslim ban, and there was massive support to have religious tests associated with that ban. So while I'm encouraged, the fact that this course of dehumanizing an entire people continues and receives support from one of the most, what, what, what we proclaim is the most democratic country in the world, and we want others to emulate our institutions and our values, for me, is problematic which means we have a lot of work to do and we need to consistently address these ongoing levels of Islamophobia. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you all for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Amani Jamal is the Edwards S. Sanford Professor of Politics at Princeton University, Dean of Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, Director of the Madua S. Bopst Center for Peace and Justice, and author of Arab Americans Before and After 9-11. Journalist Malika Bilal is host of The Take podcast by Al Jazeera and former co-host of The Stream, a social media-led talk show on Al Jazeera English. And Fatima Ahmad is the executive director of the Muslim Justice League here in Boston. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're on the web at WGBH.org News Under the Radar with Callie Crossley and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubeli and engineered by Dave Goodman. Iptasan El Maliki is our intern. 
Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.